This evening we're going to be opening up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians. If you're joining us for the first time, maybe you're just jumping in here on a Wednesday night, we've been going through this series during 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We gather together, we worship for a bit, then we get into a study of God's Word, and then we break up into discussion groups. That's why you see circles around our sanctuary. And if you're new or you're just joining us, you're welcome after the message to jump into one of these uh, circles. Um... But no pressure. No pressure at all. We do an online group. Did you guys know that? It's pretty cool. Can you all say hello to online people? Let's make some noise. Hi. It's so cool. They, they stick around and they jump in an online group with us afterwards. Uh, but this evening, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right. We're going to read. We're going to pray. And then we're going to... Dive on into it. I've got the youth group trained. When I like pause right there, they just say it. So let's see if I can train you. We're going to read, pray, and then dive on into it. Beautiful. Okay, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read the first 10 verses. Beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Everyone say judgment of God. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you all suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest. Everyone say rest. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Jesus, that your word is living and it's powerful. I thank you that you're here, you're with us tonight. And God, I just echo that prayer that we just said a moment ago, that we ask, Lord, that you would be our sanctuary, that you would be our place of rest. Father, I pray for some of those in this place today that might um, have a bit of confusion when it comes to your judgment, when it comes to the end times, when it comes to your righteousness and your justice. Father, I pray you'd bring clarity. I pray for those that are maybe caught up in hardship or trial, difficulty. I pray for those that have experienced abuse or betrayal or injustice. And they've at some time or another cried out saying, God, why won't you just fix this? Father, I pray that you would bring comfort to your people tonight. That there will be a day soon when you will come And you will put all things in order. And you will right every wrong. Jesus, we thank you that in you there is hope. 
We thank you that you are our living hope. And Jesus, we give you our time right now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Well, isn't it incredible, incredible that even at a very young age, we have this innate desire for justice? How many of you have been around little kids recently? Okay. I mean, you know, I've got a few of my own right now. I've got an almost five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a six-month-old. And you know what a phrase that I hear a lot in my home? Daddy, that's not... Daddy, that's not fair. Daddy, that's not fair. In fact, I won't name names, but my oldest is incredibly, incredibly into justice. She wants to make sure that everything is fair. And so oftentimes, maybe they're playing in a different room, and and I hear some conflict or some argument. It sounds like there's some injustice going on in the room. My oldest will come and just say, Daddy, you need need to tell him. Daddy, you need to come in here. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Or sometimes, how many of you know, like those of you moms out there, and you've just been dealing with it all day, so what does mom say? You just wait till Daddy gets home, Right? So daddy's got to come home as the judge and I got to come home and I got to set things in order and I got to discipline the kids. But this is the thing. I'm an inconsistent judge. Like my boy, who is the oppressor within the relationship, oftentimes, this little three-year-old, we've got different names for our kids, but we called Presley Fidel for a long time because she's this little, just like, tyrant in our home. And then we started calling Knox Kim Jong-un because, um, and uh, so we're trying to, you know, Banks isn't there yet. But, but the point is, they've just got these little attitudes and they have these desires to, for justice and these things. And sometimes when I come home and I'm trying to discipline the kids, Sometimes I can just be too soft or sometimes I can be inconsistent. So my daughter say, Daddy, well, that's not fair. When I did this, you did that. And this was my discipline at that time and all these things. And it just is quite hilarious. But this is the point. The point is very simple. At a very young age, we have an innate desire for justice for right or wrong. The reality is, is so oftentimes that we don't experience true justice. And there's different judges that are placed within our lives that do not judge fairly. But the reality of what we're going to see today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is that there is a king who's coming, and his name is Jesus. And he's a perfect judge, he's a consistent judge, he's a righteous judge, and when he comes, he will judge righteously, he will judge consistently, and he will set all things into proper order. Now, (coughs) excuse me, I'm, I'm a little sick here. Before we continue on and we see the judgment of God, which we'll see here in 2 Thessalonians 1, this is going to be our um, outline tonight. Number one, we're going to see the reason for this letter. Number two, we're going to see the reality of the judgment. And number three, we're going to see the remaining responsibility. So the reason for this letter, the reality of judgment, and the remaining responsibility. Let's consider first, as we see the judgment of God here in chapter 1, let's consider, though, the reason for this letter. If you would, read with me again from verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you and all bounds towards each other, so that we ourselves, both of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions, everyone say persecutions, in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. 
as usual here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul begins his letter with praise. Now, as you know, this is the second letter that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing to this church. In fact, it seems that after the first letter, the first letter was full of such high praise and full of so much encouragement and commendation that the church of Thessalonians actually thought they were undeserving of such praise. If you remember, the church in Thessalonica was going under intense persecution. And Paul writes to them to encourage them in 1 Thessalonians, just like, man, you guys are doing great and so proud of you. And hey, let me tell you that I'm, I'm praying for your faith and your hope and your love. And he's just encouraging them and encouraging them, encouraging them. And it seems that they almost, when they got the first letter, somehow word got back to Paul and the team that they, the Thessalonians, didn't think that Paul was being that sincere or genuine because his praise was just so high of them. And so here we see the reason for this letter. We see the reason, number one, is that Paul's just reaffirming and reiterating his high praise for the church in Thessalonica. He wants to prove to them the genuineness of his gratitude for this church. Also, we're going to see that he wants to provide clarity on the return of Jesus, which is a big part of what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians. He's just providing further clarity in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, let me read to you the first lines of 1 Thessalonians in chapters 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, Paul said this, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope, and our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So faith, love, and hope. That's 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, what's he doing? He's encouraging them for their exceedingly great Faith, their abounding love, but what's missing? Hope. It's actually missing here. So here in the first few verses, we see the reason why he's writing for them is to praise them once again. But it's actually also in what he doesn't say, we see also provides the reason why he's writing them. And what he doesn't say is he doesn't commend them for their hope like he did in 1 Thessalonians which tells us that he's writing to them that their hope may abound, that in the midst of the persecution and the affliction that has only increased since the last letter, he's realizing that as the persecution and affliction increased, hey, their faith and love was still doing well, but they were kind of lacking a little bit of hope. So he's writing to them to provide to them hope in the midst of their persecution, and in the midst of their affliction. And the antidote that he prescribes here in chapter 1 for this hopelessness is the judgment of God. Which is kind of interesting. Like the judgment of God, we don't usually like think of as something that's like hope-filled and positive, like someone's down, don't worry man, Jesus is going to come back as a judge. But that's exactly Paul's attitude here. He writes to them of the judgment of God. So we've already considered the reason for this letter is to, again, reaffirm his gratitude for the church, but it's also to provide clarity on the return of Jesus and to provide hope for them in the midst of their persecution. And the way he's providing hope for them is by teaching them of the judgment of God. So let's then go to number two, the reality of God's judgment. The reality of God's judgment. Let's read verses 5 through 10 again. It says, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. 
that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angel, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. The reality of judgment and the doctrine of judgment was Paul's antidote for the lingering hopelessness that the Thessalonians were enduring. And it's important to distinguish that what Paul is speaking of here in 2 Thessalonians 1 is different from where we left off in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week we left off considering the rapture of church, the rapture of the church, where Jesus will return for his bride. But now Paul is mentioning the second return of Jesus when he returns as a judge. So the rapture of church is the returning for his bride in the air, but then the second return onto the land is Jesus coming back as the judge, to judge the earth, to rule and to reign here on the earth. This day, this judgment is known as the great white throne judgment. Everyone say, great white throne judgment. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, describes the great white throne judgment like this. In Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, we read this. He said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from its presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the Apostle John's account or revelation of the great white throne judgment. This is the day when all people will be judged by God. All will stand before the very throne of Jesus himself. And the book of life will be opened. And they will be judged by what they have done with the person of Jesus. Jesus gives us further clarity in John chapter 12 and verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when it, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So here Jesus is saying that he's coming. He will come again to judge. And in this judgment, there will be a separation between those who go to the resurrection of life and others to condemnation. Jesus says it in other words, and in, in I forget where exactly it is, um, but and maybe it's in Luke 12. He says that there's going to be a separation between the sheep and the goats. So he's going to separate his people and those that are not his people. That is what the great white throne judgment is. 
Now, as we consider this, this subject can oftentimes make many people uncomfortable. The subject of heaven and hell is something that makes many cringe. But can I tell you that the great white throne judgment of God is incredibly good news. Just consider for a quick moment the alternatives. You know what the modern alternative is right now? The modern alternative is you're the judge. I'm the judge. I do me. You do you. I'm going to judge according to my way. You're going to judge according to your way. But if you're the judge of your life and you're the judge of their, if everyone's their own judge, then where's the consistency for judgment? I mean, come on. I can't even figure out with my wife where we want to go for dinner. Like, let alone, like, to judge between the wicked and the righteous. Like, anyone else? Like, that's a lot of pressure. So not only, one, is that a lot of pressure to be your own internal judge. Not only am I so inconsistent that in one drive, five-minute drive, I want sushi, I want hamburgers, I want bean and cheese. Like, I want so many different options. Like, you're saying that I have to be the judge of wickedness and righteousness. Like, that's a lot of pressure on one person. But not only that, that's kind of humorous and funny, but the reality, like, it's also incredibly inconsistent. Because if there's not a standard of judgment, then what in the world do we do about the evil that's in this world? I mean, the modern, uh, intelligent, sophisticated person would say, like, yeah, there needs to be something done about evil. They would say that injustice is wrong. Okay, then who judges injustice? Where's the standard come from? Is it my standard? Is it your standard? Is it their standard? Is it this country's standard or that? We have to find a standard to judge. So that alternative of that kind of judgment is just like chaotic. It's inconsistent. It's messy. And it seems like it's not going to be fair at all. Now there's another alternative to, to judgment. Because every single worldview and, and, and culture has an idea of judgment. The Eastern idea of judgment is karma. If you do good, good's going to come to you. If you do bad, bad's going to come to you. Which is really not good news. Because if you mess up once, it's coming. Like, bummer. I was just having a bad day and I was hungry and kind of sick and I just, I didn't mean to respond in that way. Like, come on, where's the grace, man? There's no grace in karma. That's the thing. So that kind of judgment is not, I mean, think through it. That's a little bit of a hopeless alternative to the judgment of God. So the judgment of God according to the Christian doctrine, according to the Bible, is actually really, 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 really good news. Because the judgment of God according to the Bible is that there is one righteous judge who is without sin, but became sin that we would become the righteousness of God. The Christian doctrine of the judgment of God is there will be a time where God is going to deal with all the evil that's in this world, he's the one that's going to deal with it. And he's going to judge righteously. And if you've done evil, and if I've done evil, and if you had a bad day just like I had a bad day, if we believe in Jesus, we're clothed in his righteousness. 
And the Son of God experienced the wrath of God and the judgment of the Father upon the cross that we won't have to. That's incredible. That's incredibly good news. And it's not offered to some people. It's offered to all people. That you can actually escape the judgment of God. Well, in some sense, you actually will be judged. You and I will be judged. But we're going to be judged by the righteousness of Jesus, not our own righteousness, because we've been clothed in his righteousness. And anybody can be experienced or be clothed in the righteousness of God if they simply believe in Jesus. So those that are experiencing this vengeance and this fire and experiencing how? It's those that chose to willingly resist and blaspheme and reject the person of Jesus. Judgment then for them is just getting what they asked for. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. I'm not holier than thou. You're not holier than thou. No, the Christian doctrine of judgment is that we all deserve the wrath of God, but it was poured out upon Jesus and our place. So when we come across the great white throne of judgment, oh man, our name, our lives are covered in his blood. It's far better. So this is why there can be a hope in the judgment of God. So as we consider the reality of judgment, number one, I want you to consider the reward in Jesus or the reward of Jesus. Let's read verse five again. He says, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, at first glance, it may seem that Paul is saying that their suffering is a result of God's judgment, but it's actually the exact opposite. He's telling them that their suffering is not in vain, that their pain will not be wasted, that God is not overlooking their situation. In fact, their ability to maintain faith in the midst of persecution is manifest evidence that they're counted worthy to be rewarded on the day of judgment. Because they're being faithful to endure. Persecution has just been like a furnace to purify and show their genuine faith in Jesus. And one day, even though they're experiencing suffering and persecution here, one day they're going to be rewarded. That's why there's hope in the judgment. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. Regardless of what we go through in this life, we will be rewarded on that day of judgment. Because of our faith, our trust in the person of Jesus. To the persecuted church in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says this in verse 10. He says, do not, <coughs> excuse me, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. But be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. For the followers of Jesus, those who place their faith in Jesus, the judgment day is incredibly good news because it's a day in which we'll be rewarded. We'll be rewarded with what? With eternity. Reigning and ruling with the person of Jesus. We'll be rewarded with his presence. We'll be given the crown of life. For the Thessalonians, this fires of persecution, it was purifying. Through this purification process the Thessalonians were going through, it was very clear that their faith was genuine. Therefore, it's manifest evidence that one day they will be rewarded. 
Now, the reality of God's judgment also produces hope because the reality of judgment points us to, number two, the repayment of Jesus. We see this in verses 6 and 8. Let's read them again. It says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The repayment or the recompense, or the justice of Jesus will be seen on the day of judgment. The many today who cry for justice, it will come. This is good news. The justice of God will come. One of the greatest concerns with following Jesus is if your God is so good, why does he allow all this junk to happen here on earth? If God is so good, what about all the atrocities that humanity's experienced? If God is so good, then why did this happen to my son? Why did that happen to my daughter? Why did that happen to my parent? Why did that happen to my friend? If God is so good, why doesn't he stop these things? The judgment of God is incredibly good news because it tells us he will. We should be a little bit fired up by the injustice of this world. The people that experience injustice. The millions that are trafficked into sex trafficking. We should be fired up about the the, the injustice of of so many (laughs) little children being killed. Justice will come. Justice will come on the day of judgment. Thank you, Zach. He will repay those with evil. They will experience the righteous judgment of God. And this is good news to the Thessalonians who are witnessing, who are watching injustice. They're watching their friends and their family members die for their faith. They're seeing families being torn apart because of persecution. They're seeing people raped. Justice will come, is what Paul is saying. God will judge. Righteousness will reign. And this we can place our hope in. Vengeance Belongs to the Lord. Romans chapter 5 says this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. On the day of judgment, all evil and malice and hardness of heart will be judged. The Lord Jesus will set all things into order. And this is good news. Because it means you will be avenged. It also means that you do not have to bear the burden of revenge. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. The desire for revenge can cripple. We've seen it in so many movies, right? 
Hollywood actually does a good job on that one. Like someone that has experienced injustice and just gets all bitter and mad and frustrated and wants to bring justice to the situation, but then they're consumed by their own bitterness. When we try to take revenge into our own hands, that's what can happen. It only causes more injustice. No, vengeance belongs to the Lord. He is able and he alone is able to carry the burden of vengeance. So friend, if you've been wronged, if you've experienced abuse, betrayal, false accusations, if you've, in, if you've experienced incredible amounts of pain, if someone has stolen your innocence or the innocence of someone you love, if you've lost a loved one to a senseless act of crime, then you will be avenged by Jesus. Take heart. He's going to set things right. If you've experienced those things, or maybe you haven't, you've only witnessed the atrocities of mankind. You've heard of the evil, murder, rape, and injustices that many bear. Certainly, then comes the question, God, if you're there, if you're God, won't you end all this? Yes, he will. He will end it all at his judgment. It's the right thing to do. It's a righteous thing to do, and it will be done by him. And in that, we can hope. The Thessalonians are watching people being murdered and taken away. The anger and the frustration that's welling up inside of them. These words come in words of comfort to these people. That God will take care of the injustice and evil of this world. So the reality of judgment means that there will be the reward of Jesus, the repayment of Jesus. The reality of judgment also promises, number three, rest in Jesus. Consider verse seven, it says, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. At the great white throne judgment, all things will be set in order. Consider the afflictions, the weariness, the hardships that the Thessalonians endured at the hands of evil men. The judgment promises rest from evil. The judgment promises rest from suffering. Rest is a theme carried from the beginning of the Bible when God rested and enjoyed his creation on the seventh day. This Sabbath rest was ruined by the unrelenting nature of a fallen world. But the day of judgment will be a day when all evil will be wiped clean, where every wrong will be made right, where every tear will be wiped away, and there will be true rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is a true rest in God and in God alone and specifically in the person of Jesus. Now consider this. There is no rest for the wicked. They will experience gnashing of teeth for eternity. But there will be true rest for the godly. Why? Because the godly are placed in Jesus. And in Jesus only true rest is found. And this is a great part point for, for application. Because in the hardships and the difficulties and the injustices and the suffering of this world. Often then resting in Jesus we have a million other coping mechanisms. We try to rest in the bottle or the pill or entertainment. 
in a relationship, numb ourselves out. There's so many different ways that we can attempt to rest. But that true rest is only found in Jesus. And on this side of eternity, where there is still suffering and evil, where Jesus has not come to judge yet, suffering and evil is around us, we can still get a taste of true rest in the relationship with Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And if you're really honest as a follower of Jesus, you really do an honest inventory of your life and and ask, am I really a restful person? Because oftentimes I'm not. But there's that invitation that Jesus gives for us to set aside everything else and just come to him and we can get a taste of that rest. But let me tell you, it's only a taste of what is to come. It's a taste, it's a foretaste of the true rest, the eternal rest that we will experience after the righteous judgment of God where he will take care of all evil and suffering. And that is good news. That is reason to hope for. So the reality of judgment means that there will be a reward of Jesus, the repayment of Jesus, rest in Jesus. And finally, the reality of judgment brings the revealing of Jesus. 3 verses 9 through 10 again. It says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, the glory of His power, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and be admired or marveled among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. The judgment of Jesus is good news because it will reveal Jesus. Now, to the ungodly, to the unrighteous, to the wicked, they will despise his coming. And as they despise his coming, what's going to happen to them? They're going to experience everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. This is a great description of hell. It's just the lack of God's presence. The absence of his presence. That's the defining element of everlasting destruction and hell. So everything in this life right now that's good, every strain of peace and comfort and joy, actually comes from Jesus. He is life. He is love. And his presence is the fullness of joy. The complete absence of the presence of God, that is what marks or describes eternal destruction. It's from the presence of the Lord. So for the ungodly, for the unbeliever, that's what they want. They're going to get what they want. They will despise his revealing. If they don't want Jesus, they'll spend eternity apart from Jesus. But for those who belong to Jesus, they will marvel at him. They will admire him. In fact, that word there, to be admired among all those who believe. If you have an ESV, that word is marveled in verse 10. And the idea behind that word is that the revealing of Jesus is he will be far greater than we could ever imagine. 
our jaws are just going to drop in amazement of who he is. You know, a part of what that amazement is, is as we witness the wrath of God poured out upon the unbeliever, we're going to marvel at Jesus that he endured that wrath for us. So often we take for granted the cup of wrath that Jesus took there on the cross on our behalf. And at his coming, when he comes to judge, we're going to marvel. We're going to be astonished. He's going to blow us away in what he endured that we might live and live with him. Second Timothy chapter four, verse eight says, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This was hope for the Thessalonians. They're longing and looking for his appearing. And man, they're going to be amazed. They're going to be left mind blown at his judgment. They're going to be marveling at who he is. So we've considered the reality of Jesus's judgment. But what does this mean for us? Do we just like hide then? Until his judgment? Until until the rapture of the church? Do we just hide? Do we just buckle down and just like endure it all? Let people run all over us? What do we do? Well, we get clarity in Paul's prayer. Paul here transitions from the promise of judgment to a prayer. And in this prayer, we see the remaining responsibility. Quickly, let's read verses 11 to 12. It says, Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this prayer, we see our remaining responsibility. Number one, we are to remain worthy. He says, his prayer is, always for you that our God would count you worthy. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 to walk worthy of our calling. To continue to walk worthy. This is our character. Our holiness. We're still called to be a holy people set apart because we serve a holy, holy God. So we're called to continue to live and to walk in a way that's worthy. They would have had every right and excuse just to do what? To be vengeful, to be bitter, to be unforgiving, to be angry, to be mad, because their circumstances were far worse than probably most of ours. The persecution they were enduring was incredible. They had every right to be fired up and bitter and angry, But what does Paul say? His prayer is that they would remain worthy of his calling. The calling of what? To to partake in the fellowship of his sufferings. The sufferings of Jesus. Well, how did Jesus walk worthy as he was suffered? Oh man, the suffering of Jesus. The Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus, he didn't even cry out while he was suffering. He endured it silently, calmly. There was this inner peace in the midst of all this craziness. We're supposed to remain worthy. Not let the tribulations and the hardships of this world get the best of us. 
but to remain heavenly minded. That's how we remain worthy. Number two, our remaining responsibility is to remain working. He says that there to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power. Remain working. There's still work to be done. That's why he hasn't returned yet. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all reach repentance. Why hasn't he returned? Because he's patient, he's long suffering, he desires to see people turn to him so that they wouldn't have to experience that type of judgment. So there's still work to be done for us. We're to remain working. We're to remain serving the Lord and serving our families and serving our community. Living for Jesus. Remaining responsibilities, remain worthy, remain working, and to remain a witness, number three and final. It says that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. In other words, continue to be his witness. Continue to live for him. Continue to glorify him. Let your light so shine before this dark world, to be his witness, to to testify of what God is doing in your life in the midst of all the craziness that this world is enduring. Imagine that. Everyone's just fired up about how this world's falling apart. And we're testifying of the good things that God's doing in our life. We're giving him glory, thanksgiving, honor, praise. This is the attitude and the responsibility that we're to remain. Remain worthy, remain working, remain a witness. How do you do this? It's by His grace. He says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are weak, friends, He is strong. His grace is sufficient for us in our weaknesses. It's by His grace that we remain worthy. It's by His grace that we remain working and heavenly minded, our eyes on Him. It's by His grace that we remain a witness. We don't have to strive for it. We don't have to attain for it. We have to rely on His grace and seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto us. We keep our eyes on Him and by His grace, He will sustain us. But the good news is, the good news is the King is coming. The good news is that justice and righteousness will reign. Until then, His grace will sustain us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close by reading the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, Blessed or happy is the one who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, this world is crazy. There's a lot of reasons to be hopeless. But there's an even greater reason to have hope. So we serve a king who died for us, who's redeemed us, and who's coming again. He's going to set all things right. And we will be rewarded when we see him. Let's continue to remain worthy, working, and witnessing. Father, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, for the truth of your judgment. We thank you, Jesus, that you experienced the wrath of God on our behalf, that we might be clothed in your righteousness. Lord, help us not to take that for granted. 
and Jesus in the midst of all the craziness of this world, would we be people who are patient like you are patient? People who are, have this deep confidence and peace and hope that's in you, knowing that you're enough and that you're coming again and that you're in control. Jesus, we love you. We look to you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen, amen.